0: Oh, And this is More Than One Lesson, episode 90. Uh, I just wanted to say thanks to our previous guest, Bill Oberst Jr., for his appearance on episode 89. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking with him. Uh, And I will go ahead and bring in our co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Good morning, everyone. Now, something... What? I said good morning, It's not morning yet. It might be for them. Fair enough. Uh, So here's something that did not come out in last week's episode. What was that? You have worked and acted with Bill Oberst Jr. Oh, a couple yes. of times.
1: Yeah, we talked about that beforehand, but I guess by yeah. the time we were onto the onto the actual episode, the ball got rolling quickly and didn't didn't come up.
0: And I felt bad that uh, that didn't come up because I'm a big fan of like it's a small world stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um so yeah, uh, as listeners know, as everyone knows, everyone you were in a film called Wesley. Wesley. Bill was also in that, but you guys did not share a scene.
1: We were never there at the same time. That that if anyone has seen it, which I don't imagine a whole lot of people have. It was a f- fairly small movie, but if anyone has seen it, um it's very uh you know, it's a historical piece, so it's very spread out. It takes place over several places with lots of different characters throughout John Wesley's life, so mm-hmm. it, it was very easy that, you know, I was one part of John Wesley's life and he was another and we never interacted.
0: You played a German guy. I sure did. And you did a German accent. I sure did. Now I can't do a German accent unless it sounds like Doctor Strangelove. I can do. <laughs> I can do sort of the Doctor Strangelove accent.
1: I don't remember how I did it for the movie, but I now when I do a German accent, it's just Werner Herzog. <laughs> and then, and then it, I, I just have to talk about dark, sad things. Or, or the, not? You can or quote that thing from the well. That's a great. If anyone, if you're on the internet right now, do yourself a favor and look up uh, Werner Herzog reading Curious George. <laughs> that's not a, an actual thing, but uh, it's it's pretty hilarious. It's pretty funny.
0: And uh, comedian Paul F. Tompkins is always funny as uh, Werner. Herzog as Herzog, yeah, on uh, comedy Bang Bang. Um, but uh, now, what? So I knew. About Wesley, what mm-hmm. I didn't know is about another film that I think uh, I, I could not find on IMDb. I don't know what happened I, with it.
1: I don't think that it's ever seen the light of day, which almost makes me think I shouldn't say the name or anything. I don't know. But regardless, there was a short film that uh, Bill and I worked on together yeah. uh, for like just a couple of days. very directly. Yes. You guys, it was, yeah. a
0: th- I believe, a three-person, a three-person cast. Three-person
1: thing. We were the only ones in it. And... Um, yeah, so we spent we spent a good bit of time together in that, and that was a while ago. So,
0: yeah. And, so it took so off air, uh, it took Bill a moment to remember it because, yeah. as mentioned on air,
1: he's been in 102 things in
0: the last uh, <laughs> in the five last years. five
1: years. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to uh, uh, to uh,
0: sort through in that yeah. memory. And so, um, but yeah, I, I I find that interesting that uh, that you guys knew each other. In some capacity before this, and then you come back together for this. I, I like that. It
1: is a small world. After all, it's a small, small, small world. Small. Okay. Small.
0: Uh, all right. So, um, oh, and you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, I want to uh, welcome anybody who f- is listening to this as a function of of listening to the Bill Oberst uh, episode. Bill was very kind as far as uh, sharing this on his Twitter feed and on Facebook, a few different places on Facebook. Um, and so uh, if you are listening to this, welcome. Feel welcome. free to go back and look at uh, old episodes. Um, yeah, if, if you are a fan of Bill, you are probably a fan of horror. <laughs> I
1: was about to say the same thing, and we have a, we have a good, about a year ago, we got a good catalog of uh, horror-related episodes that yes. you probably will enjoy. And this uh,
0: and this uh, month, this year, October of this year, uh, we are spending the whole month on Halloween-related movies. Now, not all of them are horror. In fact, only one of them is. But we'll get to that uh, in a few weeks. Um, but uh, so yeah, stick around if you enjoy uh, talking about uh, the macabre and that sort of thing. Uh, but in the meantime, I wanted to uh, also say that. Uh, by the time this posts, uh, you have, I think probably about 12 hours, maybe even less to, uh, go to the podcast awards and nominate us or submit us in the religion category. Um, as time has gone on, I care a little bit less about the podcast awards, partially because I know I won't win, but also, um, just, you know it's real, it used to be very important. Like I really wanted to get like some kind of award. I wanted to like be recognized in some way, but frankly, like just in some of the listeners that I've had the privilege of meeting over the last year, I just realized like, you know what? Like the show is, it's doing pretty well already. I've been able to, you know, have some relationships with people that I wouldn't have otherwise. And really that's, that's what it's about. So if you want to go to the podcast awards and submit us, great. If not, it's really not that big of a deal. Um, If we're nominated, however, I'm going to push you and push you to vote for us. (laughs) Uh, And then lastly, I did want to mention that uh, a short time ago, we were mentioned, not mentioned, we got a a pretty uh, large spread on the Christian Film Database. They uh, posted about what the show is, uh, some of our guests, what some of our notable episodes are, uh, and that sort of thing. And so uh, I wanted to thank them for that. that was very that was very nice, of them, especially because, frankly, as listeners know, from a, from the point of view of artistic taste, I probably don't have a great deal in common with the Christian Film Database. But I think they seem to like what we are doing, or at least respect what we're doing, and so they felt the need to tell other people about that. And uh, I've gotten some emails as a function of that from like-minded Christians, and so uh, I wanted wanted to thank the uh, the people over at uh, the Christian Film Database for for that. So, I think that covers all of the announcements. Um so I guess we'll just uh, jump right in. So, as I mentioned, October is Halloween month. It's Halloween times. It it is Halloween times. Is that from something or did you just say that?
1: I've decided that's what I'm calling October from now
0: on. Good. All right. Well, that all right. Well, that's good to know cuz now I've decided that for the month of October I'm not going to speak to you. Too late. I know. And Here we it's are. on mic. Like, so no one can say I didn't. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so we we are talking about Halloween movies uh, in some way. Now, uh, last week we didn't talk about a specific movie. We talked to a horror icon uh, to tie into Halloween. Uh, this week, however, I wanted to think a little bit outside the box, and rather than pick something that is overt horror, as we did last year with The Mist and Cabin in the Woods, although Cabin in the Woods I wouldn't say is overt horror, yeah. but... Um, I decided to go with something a little bit different, and so I, I decided to talk about a movie from last year called Paranorman, which is, uh, in many ways, uh, you could say a kid's movie, um, but as seems to be happening a lot with kid's movies these days, uh, by which I mean like the last 10 or 15 years, um there's a a lot for adults, and in many cases, I feel like kids might be frightened, or it might be a little too a little a little over uh, over kids' heads. But at the same time, uh, kids are more resilient than I think I give them credit for. Yeah. I mean, we we were all raised with Pinocchio and snow white and other rather disturbing disney movies i think
1: those of us who grew up in the in the 80s and and such uh we i feel like we're more comfortable with that kind of thing we're like yeah bring on the weird scary kids movies because we had you know yeah the black crystal and labyrinth and all that all that stuff
0: david bowie was in a movie that we watched as kids (laughs) take that baby boomers yeah but uh yes cauldron oh and did you ever see return to oz yeah, I don't know if I did. That thing is a living nightmare. <laughs> really? It's uh, it's the sequel
1: to The Wizard of Oz. I read that, but I read a. Bu- There's like 16 of those books, and I was into them when really? I was when I was younger. Yeah, I read a bunch of them. Not I've never them, met but... anybody
0: that has read. What is it, Frank Baum? Frank, yeah, L yeah. Frank Baum. L Frank. Ba- okay, yeah. Um, I've never in my in my entire life I've never read anybody. I've never met anybody that has read any of those books.
1: Oh, Really? Are they good? I mean, I liked them when I was young, but I was probably like 12 or so when I was into those, so I don't really remember if uh, if they were any good or not. It's interesting, okay, this is,
0: uh, we're off topic already, but it's interesting to me that part of me is like, oh, I, I would like to read, you know, The Wizard of Oz books, but then I realize, well, a lot of the things that I love about The Wizard of Oz couldn't be in books. Like, mm. some of that music, <laughs>
1: some of the musical numbers yeah. are great. nobody sings over the rainbow in the book. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> It's a really great song. That's it is a genuinely a good, song. good song, but um, but also just uh, was that
1: AFI's like number when they do that list of the songs. I feel like they did that one. And-
0: you and I uh, spent a long time one night uh, trying to guess what was on the top ten, oh, and man. I and I think that was number one.
1: Were we guessing the songs? I thought we were guessing something else. Although one li- one guessing list always turns into another guessing that is list. True. Yes, I so think it's we were possible about that a song both happened. Um,
0: but uh, yeah, it was probably that one. Um, but yeah, and then the other thing is, you know, the idea of going from like sepia tones to full on Technicolor, right? Like that is a an amazing choice that you just can't get in a book. And of course, you know, books have things you can't get in movies. But when we think of how iconic The Wizard of Oz is, yeah, that stuff that does not translate to the, to the page. So. And
1: mo- probably most people have heard the stories about how things icon- iconic, things like the ruby slippers, for mm-hmm. instance, are silver in the book, but were changed to red for the movie because Technicolor was, you know, color was more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, oh
0: boy, man, those books sound terrible. <laughs> so, Silver Slippers, are you kidding me? Yeah. Come on. Stop wasting our time, bomb. I know. <laughs> time bomb? I didn't mean to do that. Oh. And I don't think I actually did anything. No. But, uh, okay, so we are going to move on to the actual movie we're talking Much about. Much to your
1: disappointment. Um,
0: so, yeah, Paranorman, directed by Chris Butler and Sam Fell, written by Chris Butler.
1: Is Sam Fell related to Norman Fell?
0: I think it is Norman Fell, but he's (laughs) going by a different name.
1: Wow, what a chameleon!
0: (laughs) Please remind me who Norman Fell is. Is he from Three's Company? Yes,
1: he's the first landlord. Uh, He's also he's in some movie where he has like a he plays like a stooge or something like that. But he's in a movie where he has a I can't think of it. I'm going to have to look it up. I'm sure he's in more than one movie, but there's one big one I think that he's in.
0: Did you watch Three's
1: Company a lot as a kid? No, I hated that one. Yeah, it never, I never did well for me either. And and you know, and I'm sure some listeners of the show know, I was into a lot of like 60s TV, watched all that Naked Night stuff, but Three's Company, man, I drew the line at that one. That was too dumb, even for me as a child. I believe
0: uh, comedian Jimmy Pardo said that he never liked it because he's like, any any show where every episode could be solved with a post-it note <laughs> is not a good show, where it's yeah. literally just like, Oh just leave us just leave a note saying where you went and everything is fine. Yeah. So um,
1: and w- and with the Norman Fell character there was always only one joke. It was like he thought Jack was gay and then they would do something silly where he was like he would make some kind of homophobic comment about about uh, that character and then and then that was the end. He'd he'd walk away, and then, yeah, it was it was dumb. That sounds terrible. It's a bad show.
0: And this all came about because I happen to say Sam Fell, the <laughs> director of the movie we are ostensibly talking about. <laughs> uh, so Paranorman is a. Uh, I love the movie for a number of reasons. One is the specificity of it. So I'll go into the into the plot uh, a little bit. Um, Norman is a. I'm going to say he's 12 ish, maybe 11, 10, right around there. Um, not a, certainly not a kid anymore, not quite a teenager. He's, he's right around, uh, you know, right around that age. Um, and he lives in a small town that is, I would venture to say, is in Massachusetts uh, or right around that area uh, where where witches were a big deal. I've ah. been to Marblehead, Marblehead, and and uh, Salem, and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so uh, this town is based entirely on like tourism, because in their history, there was uh, the witch's curse, um, and some, some puritanical uh, uh, city leaders and, and stuff, they, they went after this witch, and then she put a curse on the town, and so now it's a big part of the tourism. And uh, so that in itself is already kind of an interesting idea, that this thing that is turns out to be real and quite horrible is also uh, something that has been co-opted to uh, make the town some money. Um, But yeah, so Norman lives in this town and he, uh, I'll just go ahead and say he sees dead people. He sees and can talk to ghosts. He can hear them and he uh, is able to carry on conversations with them and that sort of thing. Nobody else can. His family thinks he's crazy as anybody
1: probably would in that situation. Yeah. And Uh, as opposed to say the, uh, um, Halo, Jill Osmond character from The Sixth Sense. Uh, Norman has a friendly relationship with all the ghosts. Very he, much so. He likes that he sees them. You know, they're they he sees them like as friends of his, mm-hmm. and uh, he he's very happy with it. So the fact that other people call him crazy and don't understand him is is all the more upsetting to him.
0: And and it is there's a poignance to it as well because one of the ghosts that he sees is his dead grandmother, and she hangs out in the house and he talks with her and uh, and his parents trying to get him to, you know, move on because they feel like he's just either making it up or, or just, it's a, it's a function of his grief or something like that. They try to get him to, to move on, but she's actually there. But, uh, so as I mentioned, there's the witch's curse and, uh, and Norman has a, uh, like a long lost uncle that is considered to be crazy and it turns out uh, Norman's uncle also can see dead people and and he does a yearly ritual uh, right around I think probably right around Halloween time in which he goes to the witch's grave and he reads from a book and that keeps her sleeping and, uh, and then the curse is a uh, put off for another year. Yeah. And so he decides he's going, Norman is old enough that he's going to bring Norman in on this. And then he can, uh, then he can be free of the responsibility of, of staving off the, the witch's curse. So. Also, uh, he
1: feels like he doesn't have much more time, he's, right? Yes. He's he older. feels like he has to pass on the, uh, the message so that someone else is able to take care of it when he's gone. Right. And so uh so
0: Norman tries to do what he can but he gets some things wrong and the witch's curse actually does happen and what that means is uh zombies uh from hundreds of years ago uh the the corpses of the people that persecuted the witch uh they come back to life and they start uh, traipsing in the, around the town and Norman and his uh friends they're not really friends quote his,
1: unquote yeah his
0: his peers um they have to try to figure out what to do and that, and that actually winds up meaning uh, confronting the witch herself. So that is the story. And so I, I want to really quickly talk about one of the things that I like about it. As I mentioned already, some of the specificity of the town and the world that is created, that is something that I really like about the good, uh, you know, kids movies or family films or animated movies. Uh, there's a world building quality. And rather than just kind of have it take place in this broad kind of thing, they, the writer and director of Paranorman, choose to make it uh, feel lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, like you can see, oh, here's the you know here's the diner, here's the gift sh- you know one of the many gift shops and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and so you really feel like you live there. And one of the other elements, maybe the chief element, I, I like the story quite a bit and I like the characters, but one of the chief elements to me is uh, the, the visuals. I think the film has a beautiful yeah. visual look.
1: Yeah, I do too. I, I I was impressed by, you know, I wasn't expecting as much out of it, I think, as I got, especially some of the stuff near the end with uh, some of those effects on the, on the witch were really cool at yeah. the end there.
0: Yeah. It's it really is quite astounding to me uh what can be done with with animation. And and this is uh computer animation with, you know, 3D like uh stop motion mm. uh,
1: character designs. Kind of a mixture kind of, of the two.
0: And um and so it's and it does seem to be kind of uh the latest in a string of slightly more adult, slightly darker uh animated uh animated kids like horror type movies. Uh, one of them was uh, Monster House which came out in 2006. Mm-hmm. One was Corpse Bride which that's Tim Burton and you kind of come to expect that and he did Nightmare Sorry. He did uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and so uh, so we come to expect that from him but then another one is uh, Coraline which is a mm-hmm. movie that I yeah. think is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I think I like it maybe even more than Paranorman.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but uh, but Paranorman is just it, Every every aspect of it it looks just a little off-kilter. Uh, it has, I would venture to say, a vaguely German expressionistic quality to it as far as how the houses look, how the trees look, how the characters look. It's just, rather than try to replicate our reality, um, as you will sometimes see in like the Pixar movies, like mm-hmm. in the Toy Story films, where... While the world of the toys may be fantastical, the world that they actually occupy is very much like ours. Rather than that, um, the uh, the makers of Paranorman really wanted to have a distinct visual style that looks off-kilter and strange. And even when everything's going well, you don't feel totally at ease in this place. Um, and so do you think i'm off do you think I'm uh, off base uh, saying it's a little expressionistic?
1: no i think you could i think you could make that argument and especially in the character design like i feel like mm. all the characters have a very uh kind of extreme look to them yeah um yeah like from shape to size like some of I mean, the, the uncle character look is about three times the size of of norm <laughs> he's, yeah. he's gigantic yeah he's basically a
0: walking house
1: yeah uh covered in hair <laughs> so um. but yeah they're uh yeah, I think that the design has that kind of has a uh, otherworldly feel to it maybe.
0: Yeah, it does. It's it's very exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Uh like there are no characters that are a little bit fat or a little bit muscular. <laughs> they have to be the most muscular thing you've ever seen or the fattest thing you've ever seen. Yeah. So or the smallest, you know, um mm-hmm. and so and that's the thing is Norman is fairly small and it seems like everything around him is bigger mm-hmm. um, and kind of intimidating. And in many cases, it's easy f- to see why he feels so judged partially because he is, but also just the world around him is imposing constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And so, um, so yeah, I just, and I, I really appreciate its use of color. It's often very uh, autumnal mm-hmm. and there's a lot of, you know, it's very Halloween type colors. You know, you got oranges and yellows and blacks and reds and that kind of thing. Um, and so just from a just visually and as far as you know the the audio which seems like a weird thing to to call out um but uh i i really appreciate like a lot of the foley work in it um and i did want to talk about the score by i believe john bryan i didn't write oh yes down. john bryan um yeah john bryan who i know primarily is the guy that did the music for uh, magnolia uh the instrumental music and um and I think Paranorman has been on my mind because a few weeks ago, for Battleship Pretension, we did our uh, some of our favorite musical scores, and uh, West Anthony, who was on the show, he had this little piece of music from Paranorman. And frankly, though I had seen Paranorman, I did not at the time remember the music. And so, um, so when I heard it, I was like, "This is great!" And kind of, it has a has a kind of a quiet melancholy, but it's a kind of sort of mournful, but it has a vague optimism to it. It's hard to explain. And, uh, and so Paranorman has been on my mind even before, um, I thought of doing this episode. And maybe that's one of the things that informed me doing the episode is I wanted to, I wanted to hear the music again <laughs> in the context of the story. And, uh, and the music is really quite wonderful. And there's a nice theme throughout uh, that I would venture to say is Norman's theme. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and I also wanted to talk about some of the voice
1: acting I think uh, uniformly it's pretty great yeah um, a lot of a lot of big names in this one too
0: big names but also people that have a solid vo- uh, quality to their voice yeah. it's, they're not merely a
1: name right right
0: which used to happen a lot more like maybe ten years ago with like you know like shark tail and stuff like that mm. um, now I mean you know somebody like an like an Anna Kendrick. People know who she is, certainly. But she has a voice that works very well for her character. Yeah. You know Casey Affleck. People certainly know who he is. Mm-hmm. But
1: I couldn't even really place his voice immediately. I couldn't either. Yeah. And that's that's an atypical Casey Affleck part because of yeah. <laughs> his real life look versus his character's look. Yeah. Um. And
0: then, uh, and I'm a big fan of Jeff Garland in general.
1: I am as well. As soon as I heard his voice, I was like, "Ah, Jeff." Yeah. Now Jeff I, it's like
0: I know what to expect from this character, <laughs> and uh, and he bombast. has a what was that
1: bombast?
0: Uh, very much. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of bluster from that character. Um, and uh, but you know what he does imbue the because he plays uh, Norman's father, mm. and that character is maybe one of the most judgmental of Norman. He is Mm -hmm. frustrated that he does not know what is going on with his son and he tends to take it out on his son. He doesn't hurt, you know, he doesn't hit him. He doesn't even really like call him names or anything, but he's just constantly discouraging him. And, and so the character is funny, but he's also, you know, it's, he's, he's a frustrating character. Um, but he is often quite funny. Perhaps the biggest laugh for me is just a nice quiet line reading where he says to his wife, I wish I understood you. <laughs> uh, it's just a, it's a nice moment, but, but yeah. And, and I, you know what? Um, uh, I'll use this to maybe move us into the plot a little bit. Um, and we've already talked about the plot uh, a little, but, um, so the character, uh, Aggie short for Agatha, who is actually, uh, the witch, um, and is voiced by, uh, I think it's Jadel F- Fairland. I don't know quite how you say it, but uh, I thought her performance was great. It turns out that the witch was actually a little girl, probably about Norman's age. She was not this cackling old woman that uh, that everybody seems to think she was. She was instead this little girl who, much like Norman, had the ability to you know talk to the dead and and, and not unlike Norman... Uh, the townspeople were very suspicious of her and didn't, and, and, you know, they decide they're going to kill her. Whereas, you know, in, in Norman's time, everyone just decides to ignore him and judge him and make fun of him. Uh, and so the two are very similar yeah. in a lot of ways.
1: And yeah. so it gives him kind of a, uh, gives him a real sympathy for her. Yeah. Um, so it kind of reverses his. His idea of who the who the witch is and yeah. um, becomes a major turning point for uh, his goals in the film. Yeah, and it also I
0: mean it's it's interesting because it means that it kind of communicates that the things that make that separate him from everybody else, the things that make him weird, mm-hmm. are the exact things that are going to equip him to actually deal with the witch. Right. Nobody else can, even even his uncle, who had a lot of the same you know, gifts that Norman has, even he is not emotionally prepared to deal with her. Norman is because of shared experience. Um, And so uh, uh, I'm just going to say Jadel Fairland uh, as uh, the witch uh, often has to be furious because at this point she's basically just a character of pure rage. She has to be furious and frightening and vengeful, but on a dime, she has to turn vulnerable and scared and sad. Mm -hmm. Um, And she does that while also, while making it seem like it's all one consistent character. Um, And it's also hard because like I said, she's basically just rage embodied. And so she's (laughs) not really playing a person. She's playing an emotion uh, personified. And so that, it's more of an abstract concept than a real person. And then eventually she becomes a real, you know, you realize that she is a real person and that's when she manages to layer on some of those other emotions. But, uh, but I really liked her performance. And as you said, when, when Norman finally does come face to face with the witch, uh, the design is so wonderful. It's really cool. Yeah. And you don't expect it. Yeah. Um, and so you, you know, it certainly is not the cackling wicked witch of the West. What? Back to Wizard of Oz. Hey. Um, it's not the cackling witch, wicked witch of the West, but it's also not the little girl either. It's mm-hmm. this whole other uh, entity. Yeah. Um, and so uh, so I wanted to just talk about that, the idea that Norman can relate to her character. And hmm. ultimately, that is what causes him to, I won't say defeat her, because it's not so much a defeat as it is he talks her out of doing what she does. Yeah, And finally... Going away,
1: well, and because that that means there will be a more of a final change mm-hmm. um, regarding this curse. The curse is something that they've just been kind of putting off yeah. for apparently centuries, and um, so Norman's approach in being able to uh, to identify with her and to speak to her on her level and to actually get her to make a decision. Um he ends up saving the town and yeah. getting rid of the curse because he is able to uh to help her on a much more personal level than has ever been done before well to help her at all it's never no one's ever tried to really help her before,
0: yeah, yeah, and that's yeah he's able to relate to her he sympathizes with her but and this is what I find interesting is that essentially what it it we come to realize that The reanimated corpses, which are, you know, they are seen as monsters, the townspeople treat them as monsters, uh, but they're not actually terrorizing anybody. They're not out, though they are zombies, they're not out to eat anybody's brains or anything like that. Uh, They're just, they've just been reanimated and are just walking around being shot, stabbed, hit, and chased by the townspeople. In other words, they're being treated the way uh, Aggie was treated when she was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, the, the, uh, the zombies are the, you know, the judge and the various townspeople that testified against her to, you know, to, uh, to condemn, con- to condemn her. Thank mm-hmm. you. To condemn her. Um, I was like, convince isn't right. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of that. Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> So that ultimately is, is her curse is to have them live like her. Mm -hmm. They were in power. They were considered normal. uh, And she was the monster. And so she wants them to feel like she wants them to know what it's like to be the monster. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that, and so like when, when Norman finds out what they've done, that they killed this little girl, uh, I mean, obviously, he is not happy with the zombies, and he asks, you know, he says, how could you, and that sort of thing. But he's also, since they are dead, he's mm-hmm. able to talk to them, and they explain, we were afraid. We didn't know. Not that that justifies it, obviously, but that uh, the zombies wind up being actually kind of sympathetic. Like, yeah. they didn't, that idea of, like, they didn't know what they were doing, and now they are forever cursed mm-hmm. because of it. Um, and so, and they're cursed because... Aggie remains vengeful. Um, she will not like. She has the power to lift the curse, but she doesn't because she is so angry, um, and you know, justifiably so as far as the anger goes. Yeah. Um. But uh. But that is primarily what I wanted to talk about was the the vengeance the the revenge uh, angle, um, because. A lot of movies, and I'm sure we've talked about movies on this show that that talk about revenge. Um, these days, especially, you run across movies that, by these days, I think I mean maybe like the last thirty or forty years, um, you run across a lot of movies that talk about the the double edged sword of revenge that it doesn't actually get you back what you lost, right? Um, and that, like in in the end, you really are no you don't get any satisfaction and you've kind of stooped to the level of the person you are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting back at. And so, but there are plenty of movies and plenty of stories that teach that revenge is awesome. <laughs> it's the best thing. Yeah. You know, um, I can't think, of, uh, like, um, there's a movie that actually I enjoy quite a bit called Payback. Did you ever see Payback? No. With Mel Gibson? It's a lot of fun. Um although I never saw the director's cut, I only ever saw the theatrical cut and the direct and that, that in itself is already pretty violent, so I can only <laughs> imagine the director's cut. Um but yeah, and you know, if you watch like you know, westerns and that sort of thing, there's not all westerns, but a lot of the old westerns and and cop movies, mm-hmm. you know, like the
1: I imagine Taken is something like that.
0: Oh, probably yes. <laughs> um just the idea of like the the Like the righteous renegade is usually where revenge movies go. Yeah.
1: Um, The most obvious one that comes to mind for me is Kill Bill. Oh yeah. Starts with the quote, "Revenge is a dish best served cold." Yes. Old Cleon proper. Yes. Well done.
0: I haven't seen Kill Bill in a while. I and I enjoy it. I've seen it too. Um, I'm not sure if I will enjoy it more or less now than when I first saw it. I prefer Kill Bill two, uh, Volume two, to Kill Bill Volume one. But that's just because of who I am and what I tend to like.
1: There's some scenes that I'm sure will continue to be enjoyable no matter what. Um, But I'm not sure if it holds up or not. I haven't seen it for a while either. And it's been... How many years has it been? Almost 10 years?
0: That's about 10 years. Yeah. Since uh, the first one, I think. first one. Yeah. And so uh, we can talk about uh, Tarantino's ridiculousness uh, another (laughs) time. Yeah. but yeah, and that's one where, and and thankfully he's he's a mature enough filmmaker that he chooses to you know put a put faces on the the seeming villains, the mm-hmm. the victims of the main character's righteous revenge mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, that's a very good example. That's two movies devoted to this person seeking revenge. And mm-hmm. any of us would say, well, yeah, they mm-hmm. killed her, you know, fiance. Uh, so it makes sense that she would kill them, you know, eye for an eye and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wanted to, but one thing that I find interesting that, uh, Paranorman goes out of its way to, to say is as Norman is confronting Aggie, the witch, he confronts her with this idea that though she was wronged, certainly in a terrible way, um, that now, by terrorizing, you know these zombies year in year out, and then also um, by extension the town. Uh, that she is actually becoming a monster as well, and maybe yeah. a, just as much a monster as these zombified townspeople are.
1: Right. Um, it's and it's easy for her to believe, and I guess can be for us to believe that if something has been done wrong to you, that an equal and opposite wrong on the other side balances things out. Right. And I think Norman's message to Aggie is that this is not the case.
0: Yeah. And just and I have a, a line written down here. He says, "You want everyone to hurt just as much as you are. So whenever you wake up, you play this mean game, but you don't play fair. You're just like them." And then uh, I don't know if it's right after this quote, but right around there, he also goes to fo- go so far as to say that she is a bully. And as we've talked about before, like the idea of a bully is like the worst thing ever. It's somebody mm-hmm. who is very powerful and hurting people that aren't as powerful and that's the thing is they were a bully to her most certainly Mm -hmm. and now she is a bully to them and almost everybody because she is more powerful than anybody yeah um and so and she is she is mortified at the idea of that yeah and she does a number on norman like (laughs) She she didn't like that she like bashes him into a tree several times like he takes some pretty awful punishment <laughs> it's i mean it's pre- it's it's very brutal at the end like what she what she does to him when he is saying things to her that she doesn't want to hear mm-hmm. and the big thing she doesn't want to hear is hey you know these people you hate you're like them now yeah and that's something that certainly nobody wants to hear like think of the person think of the person that you hate more than anything i have no problem thinking of that person it's me it's josh um but you know people just like this co-host dynamic so i can't get rid of them (laughs) um but like think of the person that maybe has done you wrong think of the person that uh that has judged you or insulted you or whatever and you and you think like oh what a horrible person they are and now imagine someone saying like yeah you're no better your first instinct is like, what, what are you talking about? I've yeah. never done what they've done. Certainly I'm better. Um, and, you know, the Christian message is that no nobody is better than anybody else. But you get revenge involved. And then you, you know, you get back at this person probably in a similar way as they got, you know, they lashed out at you. And it's like... Well, now you don't even have the argument that you've never done what this person has Mm -hmm. done. Now you're just saying, well, it's different for me. Yeah, And that's, I think, where you get a certain degree of Mm -hmm. self-righteousness. And so with that, I wanted to bring up uh, the companion film, which is Animal Farm. Now, there are two options here. There's the animated film based on George Orwell's novel Mm -hmm. uh, that that was made in the uh, the mid-50s. Mm-hmm. Or there is a live-action adaptation of the novel, which was made in 1999 uh, by the same people that uh, brought you Babe,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, Babe Pig in the City, I would assume.
1: And that, was and on, so, that was a TV movie, too, wasn't it, on TNT? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, There's also the Kinks song, which has nothing to do with the book.
0: Really? I thought they just did a whole song of the book. <laughs> I thought, and isn't the song like
1: several hours long? It's very long. It's very depressing.
0: You can't, you never know
1: what they're going to do. They were all about some British culture. (laughs)
0: Uh, And so I I decided to talk about the the live action 1999 version, but seek out that animated version for a number of reasons, not the least of which is an interesting bit of backstory. Do you know that, uh, have you seen the animated film?
1: I feel like mm, I've seen part of it. I feel like maybe it was on a tape someone had. I okay. saw part of it. I first saw it in my American government
0: class my sophomore year of high school. And, uh, and as time has gone on, it has come out that that animated film was more than partially financed by the CIA as yes as a part of their like propaganda machine to show the evils of socialism and thankfully they have this novel that points out the evils of socialism and so yeah they uh they partially financed it and they added uh they kind of insisted on there being an ending because the ending of the book animal farm is one that is you know it's merely depressing it's hey this thing went bad and now it is now it's just bad Mm -hmm. whereas uh the animated film it's hey this thing went bad and now it's time for these character, these other characters these victims to stand up and revolt because i'm sure to them they're like all right russians you're not doing you're not having a good go of it so maybe follow the uh the lead of these animated you know cows and stuff and stand up against these uh these uh, communist guys so um it's interesting so it is interesting and that's uh and it's a and it's a perfectly fine animated film um but that i think is one of the most fascinating things about it yeah um and i feel like that has come to light only somewhat recently like in hmm. the last 10 or 20 years so uh but no i wanted to talk about the 99 version directed by john stevenson stevenson uh and speaking of voice cast boy oh boy i Josh, just shut up and let me run down this for you. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, everybody. That's a joke I make usually on Battleship Pretension. I shouldn't make it here. I I have the utmost affection for Josh. Okay. Uh, As uh, Snowball, the uh, pig Trotsky, basically, uh, you've got Kelsey Grammer. As uh, Squealer, you've got Ian Holm. As Molly, the horse, you've got Julia Louis-Dreyfus. As Jesse, the dog and narrator, you've got Julia Ormond. As uh, Benjamin, the mule, but also uh, Mr. Jones, the farmer, you've got Pete Postlethwaite. As Boxer, the horse, you've got Paul Schofield, he of uh, Man for All Seasons and Quiz Show, among several other things. Uh, as Napoleon, the villain of the piece, you've got, of course, none other than Patrick Stewart. And as Old Major, the Lenin of the... Uh, Of the film you've got Peter Ustinov One of my favorite actors And a guy who wrote I think a couple of autobiographies One of which I read called Dear Me And it (laughs) is wonderful He was a witty witty guy So seek it out if you you haven't read it Which you probably have not Uh, So for those that don't know The plot of Animal Farm I've been talking for a while and you look like you're fading So let's get you involved What is the plot of Animal Farm
1: Uh, Animal Farm is (laughs) Based on the novel obviously Mm -hmm. Of the same name Pushed um, by sapphire. <laughs> <laughs> animal Farm, based on the novel Animal Farm by George Orwell. Yeah, um, uh, it's about a, a farm where the animals feel that they are being—they're uh, not being treated right. They're being oppressed by the farmer, exploited, exploited, even you might say, and um, uh, they are—they are brought to this idea by Old Major, the. Uh, <laughs> In, in this film, I remember being depicted as a severely overweight pig. Yes. A gigantic very big pig. big and fat. Um, who... I think he dies early on in the book. Yes, he does. Um, but... And in the movie, then. But uh, his message of not letting... You know... Not allowing themselves to be exploited... Uh, causes the animals to revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and take over the farm. Um, and you know, as Tyler's mentioned, all these, these characters, uh, connect to specific historical Russian characters, characters, uh, historical figures. Um, so it's, it's a pretty, it's pretty obvious allegory of the revolution and, uh, and of communist Russia. Yeah. George um, Orwell was, uh,
0: the writer of the novel and he, uh, was actually kind of excited for a while about, uh, socialism in Russia. And, uh, then when he saw how it played out, specifically under Stalin, hmm. he got very, he was very, very disillusioned. And that's when he wrote the book.
1: Yeah. So, um, so yeah, and the, uh, the tragedy, I guess, of the story is that once the pigs are in charge, um, they suddenly realize what they were able to do through being in charge and mm-hmm. through the power that they have and slowly become just as bad as the farmers ever were. Yes. Um, one of my, one of the key things that I remember is that they have a set of rules that they have, um, you know, painted for all the animals to see in the, and the, at first there was just one rule, which is all animals are equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, over time, slowly and slowly, the the rules become. I think there. I think there are several
0: rules, and there are va- very basic things of like how best to not emulate man. Like you Maybe will not like a... no animal shall sleep in a bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and little things, and then it ends with all animals are equal. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then as the pigs, as they decide they want to be more and more like men, they make certain changes. They go into the middle of the night and they add like. You know, an animal will not sleep in a bed with sheets, and right, so now right, right. The pigs are sleeping in beds, but there are no sheets, so they're okay.
1: Yeah, and of course, it ends up that at the end, the the key commandment, "all all animals are equal," becomes "all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others." Yes,
0: and so, um,
1: so one of the reasons that I wanted
0: to uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to pick the ninety nine version is because uh, they actually. Do some really neat things with uh, with the filmmaking. One of them is that the characters, the the animals, um, get hold of uh, Farmer Jones' uh, like camera equipment, and they make propaganda films for Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Napoleon is the 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 pig in charge and the the Stalin surrogate. Um, head pig in charge. Yeah, he's the head hog, as I like to call him. The big pig, boss hog. Boss Hog, yes, that is what he is, Napoleon, <laughs> and um, and so they they make these propaganda films about how awesome Napoleon is, and the prop and they work so well. I mean, they just like the characters are singing and they sound very it sounds very Russian. Um, so that was something that I really like that the that the book didn't have and the original and the the animated film didn't have, and uh, and I like I'm okay with the with a film deviating from source material in order to not necessarily enhance it, but further illustrate it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then, uh, and one of the, one of the, um, propaganda films, it ends with like, you just see like Napoleon's kingdom and it looks, and it's black and white, but it's just, it, it looks so much like a Soviet propaganda film. It's astounding. And it ends <laughs> with a pan up and you see shoes, pants, uh, a nice coat, with some medals on it. And then you realize, Oh, it's Napoleon. (laughs) He is not merely standing on two feet. Like he said, he, you know, nobody should do. Mm -hmm. Uh, but now he's wearing a suit and he just literally everything about him is a man. He couldn't be more like the, the, the previous regime. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but then also there's a nice little moment where at the, I believe the book ends with, uh, the narrator saying that, uh, uh, napoleon is doing is uh, doing deals with um other farmers human farmers yeah and they are and so they're looking at them through the window and watching napoleon deal with this farmer and they're laughing and that the the animals after a while couldn't tell one from the other Mm -hmm. in the in this film uh they handle that so well it's so amazing i went back and watched it uh on youtube oddly enough uh last night in preparation for this and uh, you have the characters looking in through the window, and the glass is kind of that old time glass that's a little distorted. Mm. And depending on where Napoleon's head is or where the man's head is, the man starts to look more piggish, and Napoleon starts to look more human. And uh, and it's it looks really good, and it looks surprisingly natural. Mm. Um, it looks like just a dis- distortion through the glass, and um, and so that's it. Really, is like though it was a hallmark film on TNT, like they really went all out and they really wanted, to, they really committed to this
1: material. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember watching it when it was on TV and, and being impressed. And I liked the book at the time I had, yeah, I, had, I uh, it. read it in, in, in high school and had to do a project on it and was very caught up in it.
0: Yeah. And it's just, uh, yeah, I think we were reading Animal Farm at the time in my in my uh, English class and then that happened to be on at the same time so I was just like, well, let's just let's let's watch that. I think we got like extra credit or something mm. if we watched it and talked about like differences from the book and that kind of thing. But anyway, um, so it's worth it's worth seeking out. I'm not sure where one would find it, well, you can find it on YouTube, YouTube first of all. Um, but what does this have to do with paranormal? Aside from both of them being ostensibly, like, for kids in many ways, I would love to see, like, a 10-year-old watch Animal Farm thinking it was like Babe um, and just <laughs> being be terrified <laughs> at the idea of Boxer, the the loyal horse, being taken to the glue factory. Um, but uh, But, yeah, and so it's just, like, using images that would appeal to children and younger audiences to talk about larger truths. Um, and what I really liked about it, I've got, I've got a couple of, uh, quotes here from animal farm. One is from old major who I said, as we, as we mentioned is the, the guy who kind of kicks off the revolution. And he says, man is the only real enemy we have. Remove man from the scene and the root cause of hunger and overwork is abolished forever. All right. So he's speaking in no uncertain terms. Like he is saying that humans are bad and they are bad for animals. um, which in many ways is kind of true. Um, you know, I, I don't consider myself much of uh, an environmentalist or anything. Uh, I still eat meat and that kind of thing. But uh, I, I'm all for the ethical treatment of animals. And uh, you watch some of those uh, PETA videos and you're like, oh, man, we are the worst. Uh, it's, it's very rough. Um, you're pretty good for Charlie, though. I am pretty good for Charlie. I did save my cat's life, admittedly. He had an infection and he was hanging out in an alley in Chicago and we took him in and got his paw fixed and now he's, uh, well, he's still rather hostile.
1: But, um, (laughs) Anyway, and so... He sees you as the only real enemy he has. That would not surprise tr- me one bit. He's striving to remove you from the scene, and hunger and overwork will be over forever. He does seem overworked. Yeah, <laughs> and and
0: doesn't he seem totally underfed to you with his giant jiggling belly? <laughs> I think that's why there are no cats in
1: Animal Farm. The idea of a cat being <laughs> overworked is just absurd.
0: Yeah. Um, so um, So the reason I wanted to include that quote is because these characters, the good ones and the bad ones, I mean, obviously it, it helps Napoleon to demonize the humans as much as possible because then it shores up, he's able to shore up his own power. Um, but, uh, but even the, even the, the good characters view humans this way. Mm -hmm. Um, and indeed, uh, in the book and to a lesser extent in the movie, uh, the humans are bad for animals. They Mm -hmm. are abusive and drunk and, and they just don't care about them. Uh, and so, you know, an argument can be made that these, that Mr. Jones is genuinely a bad guy. Uh, but what I wanted to also emphasize, so here's, here's a line. I believe it's the last line of the book. And, uh, and it says the creatures outside. And I mentioned it already. The creatures outside looked from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. So, you have the pigs who are in charge of making sure this does not seem like, you know, that, that this is a, a place where all animals are equal. And and underneath it all, there's the, there's the unspoken, or maybe it is spoken message, that we are better than men. We are, you know, we're better than they are. But then by the end, that self-righteousness, because I feel like you can only be self-righteous for a certain point yeah, you know, up to a certain point before you start just becoming plain selfish. Um because if you think that you are you and you alone are righteous, then you'll start to justify, well, it's okay for this for mm-hmm. me to do this. And eventually he winds up you know, the pigs wind up just as bad as as men. And in that, and so that's where I feel like Paranorman comes in is the, you know, where the two fit together is you have these characters who look at people that have done genuine wrong and they think I could never be that, Mm -hmm. you know, Josh, you talked about it a little earlier. Like uh, certainly I could never do such a thing.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, and because I could never do such a thing because I am better, then it's okay for me to hurt others. Right. Whether the people that wrong me directly or people that are peripheral to that. yeah. Those It's characters, different for me.
1: Right. Those characters set themselves above um, the things that have been done wrong to them. And once they're in this place of, you know, supposed moral authority or moral superiority, then it's become so much easier to excuse the kinds of actions that you condemned in the first place. And, you know, it's interesting um, today I went to a screening
0: of uh, 12 years a slave a film that's going to be released very soon and is already something of an Oscar frontrunner and the movie is fine I'm not going to go into my, a lot of detail about it partially because I think I'm not allowed to but um, but it did get me thinking about slavery and this idea that like if I if I think I am better than you Josh not merely you know, I'm better than you at, you know, certain activities or whatever, but that I am inherently better than you. Mm. Then how could I, then I'm totally justified in anything I do to you mm-hmm. because you do not deserve the same things I do. Right. And so that's how something, you know, it's an extreme, but certainly not an unheard of one. Yeah. Uh, that's how something like slavery can come along. Yeah. Um, and it's worth noting that Napoleon kind of enslaves, um, the other, the other animals. Yeah. And the witch has kind of enslaved, uh, these zombie guys. Mm-hmm. And so, um, zombie guys, zombie guys. <laughs> uh, the minute I said, it, I was like, why did I say that? <laughs> why did I put it like that? Um, the zombified townspeople is what I should have said. Um, but I prefer zombie guys and perhaps that's our next t-shirt. Puritan zombies. Pure zombies pure zombies it's delicious (laughs) it's a drink um so but that and and it's interesting is how much people assume that the the concept of revenge will uh, you will inevitably wind up as bad if not worse than the person that has wronged you in the first place yeah i have a quote here from marcus aurelius I decided to, I was looking up revenge quotes and I like, Oh, Hey, former uh, Roman emperor, I believe. Uh, he's, what's he got to say? Uh, the best revenge is to be unlike him who performed the injury. And it is, it is fascinating. As I said before, it is fascinating to me just how much like it's the idea of revenge is intermingled with the idea of being the same as this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, And, of course, the Bible has something to say about revenge. What does it have to say, Josh, in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21? Josh, take us away.
1: Well, off the top of my head, I would say that it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good.
0: Okay, so um, so clearly the Bible is not uh, in favor of uh, revenge,
1: and so um, but I, I do love how uh, one thing I've always loved about this passage is that how how well God still knows the human heart, because even in this, telling us not to uh, to take revenge or not to avenge ourselves. The, uh, the incentive is heaping burning coals on your enemy's head. Right. (laughs) um, yeah, it seems, it seems counterintuitive, but
0: it's more just like, (laughs) I, 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 I've always liked that, but I always found myself kind of conflicted about it. Whereas mm. like, he's not trying to squelch the, the vengeful spirit. He's trying to say like, this'll get, (laughs) um, And I know that's not exactly what is being said. Right. But, um, but yeah, that is something I find fascinating. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, so yeah, the Bible clearly says like, don't, do not take revenge. And so, you know, what happens when we are wronged? And that's the thing. Likely we are not, if you're listening to this and you know, if you're a, Living person, twenty thirteen. Chances are, you are not a. You're not going to take revenge on someone. You are not going to like devote your life to getting back at someone.
1: Yeah, you're not going to take revenge on someone in a in a kung fu movie sort of way. But if you don't think you're a vengeful person, think of the way that you drive.
0: Oh, no question. (laughs) Like someone cuts you off, you cut them off exactly. Like like,
1: (laughs) yeah, you send one of theirs. They send one of ours to the hospital. We send one of theirs to the morgue. That's the Chicago Um, way. So how they drive in Chicago, I guess. Um, <laughs> kind of, yeah. That's terrifying. But anyway, um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Like, So we even if it's not this big, uh, you know, if you're not finding the man who killed your family and making him pay, we still have this. We yeah. still act this way. Like, we still want to get revenge. And some of it roots out of our... I think a lot of it roots out of our disbelief that, uh, that God's justice will, will take care of those things. Yeah. Um, if we all just believed like, well, God's going to see that this is repaid the way it should be, if it should be. Um, and, and, <laughs> and we're like, I'm right here. I can cut this guy off right now. Yeah. I can take care of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but you know the idea that it, we we if we see a way to take care of it ourselves, um, and we do that, then we're we're saying we're we're essentially saying, uh, yeah, maybe God can take care of this, but I know I can take care of it.
0: Yeah, and and that's the thing is aside you know traffic aside, we likely are not going to be in a situation where we have to avenge somebody or something like that, but um. I would say that for us, you know, you and me and the listeners, um, vengeance and a vengeful spirit probably comes through in just a general lack of forgiveness. Uh, because revenge, like taking revenge on somebody, is really just the the extreme uh, extension of not forgiving someone. Because when you forgive someone, what you're, you know, one of the things that you're saying is what you've done is, it's not excusable, but I will not hold it against you, partially because who am I? Mm -hmm. I am not so special that I cannot be sinned against. And by the way, I've sinned against many other people myself. And I, you know, and I, and of course we've all sinned against God and we want to be forgiven by him, but we won't forgive other people. Like, um, and so, so I feel like that is how we take revenge is we don't, we hold things against people to the point where, you know, there, there are people that I haven't seen in 15 years. And if I saw them, you know what? I probably wouldn't say anything, but I know that I would look at them and just be bitter and angry and it would undoubtedly come through in how I talk to them. Mm. Um, and so like, but that's the thing is, ultimately, by saying, I don't forgive you, you don't deserve my forgiveness, in that way, we're saying, like, yeah, what they did is worse than what I've done, because mm. I deserve forgiveness, but they don't. Uh, and to me, that is, that therein lay the self-righteousness that we we're talking about. That idea is like, well, I'm, yes, I recognize I'm not perfect, but certainly I'm not this. Um, and so... If you head down that road, then self-righteousness can become self-centeredness and then selfishness. And before you know it, you might wind up doing exactly the same thing. You know, Uh, for example, the one of the people that I have in mind, he had said something to me uh, when I was young that has stuck with me my whole life and has informed a lot of things that I have uh, a lot of bad decisions that I have made. Mm. And I hold that against him. And I shouldn't because he was speaking from a place of superiority. And once I start holding something against him, I'm adopting an air of superiority. And so who's to say that in that, you know, when I'm feeling particularly superior, I haven't said something equally scarring to somebody else. Hmm. And I might not even know it because I'm sure this guy doesn't know it, you know, and so. So I, you know, I, I feel like maybe this is all very abstract, but ultimately what I'm saying is, you know, try your best to, you're probably not going to take revenge on anybody, but you probably will not forgive somebody as a way of trying to hurt them. Even if they don't know about it, you're trying to hurt them. And so, um, but Christianity is all about forgiveness, God's forgiveness of us. And then by extension, our forgiveness of other people. And so, and forgiveness is very hard it's very hard to practically do like if you if you Josh Henry long, if you decide you know that somebody has you know even somebody you know what I was going to say somebody like Megan your wife but that's that's different because you're you're going to want to forgive her as much as possible because you mm-hmm. love her but like let's say just a random coworker or something like that. They do something or they say something that just, ah, uh, it just gets you. Like, it's insulting. Maybe they meant it. Maybe they didn't. You're not sure. But either way, you know you've been hurt. How do you go about forgiving them? I mean, it's almost pure, again, it's almost purely about thoughts yeah. and emotions. It has so like, to
1: be, like, in in your heart and in your attitude towards that person. Mm-hmm. You can't, like, there's not an action that you can do that is forgiving someone. There might be some kind of action or maybe inaction that comes from that inner forgiveness, but it's it's all a question of um, how you how you uh, how your heart feels towards that person. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that's and for for me, how I eventually. How I start with it is the realization of like for, you know, cutting off in traffic. There's one mm-hmm. where it's just like, I can't believe you cut me off. And that guy cut me off in traffic, you know? And let's say it's somebody who's veering in and out. Like clearly this guy is just a jerk. There's no question about it. And he cuts you off and he, he clearly does not care. Cause this is how he's getting his way through traffic. I saw that the other day and it, you know, bothered me. He basically blew through a red light. And then started weaving through traffic like this guy clearly thought he was very important. Um, And I was so furious at him. Um, And one of the things that made my fury die down a little bit was the thoughts like you've cut people off. Mm-hmm. Now you, in the moment, you sir, you didn't mean to, and you tried to wave, but maybe that person didn't take your wave. Maybe yeah. they didn't see it. Maybe they're just still furious at you. Mm-hmm. You would want them to forgive you and understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Maybe this guy that blew through the red light and is veering through traffic. Maybe he genuinely has somewhere to be. Maybe he has to be to the hospital or something like
1: that. Maybe he's going to lose his job if he doesn't get to work.
0: Exactly. Like you never know, and so that's what helps me is this realization. It's like. you you can do and probably have done everything that has been done to you. So come on, you want people to forgive you. So now you should forgive them Hmm. whether they ask for it or not. That's the other thing.
1: Yeah. So that's because oftentimes they will not ask. (laughs) Oftentimes they
0: will not ask. Yes. Uh, But that's, that's where it starts for me. But then, you know, sometimes it's a, you know, when dealing with, this person, maybe it's someone that's kind of close to you and they hurt you in a very specific way, you know? And then it's like a, it's a daily reminder that they did this and what they did was wrong. It's not to excuse what they did. Um, and maybe it's something that will have a consequence at the very least you saying what you did hurt me, but it's saying what they did hurt and it was wrong, but I am no better. Mm. And I, if the circumstances were just right, could do very well, could do exactly the same thing. I probably have done something similar. So really, who am I to, to judge them? So like, that's where it starts with me. It yeah. doesn't always, uh, doesn't always succeed. Some days, I <laughs> some days are better. Some days are worse. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm holding like five grudges against you right now. Oh yeah. Which is to say, I've got five copies of the grudge and I'm holding them against right Josh. against my face. Yeah. Um, so, uh, See, and I, I went with The Grudge. That's a horror movie. It's hey. Halloween times. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah. So, I will wrap up by just saying, if you have not seen Paranorman, seek it out. It's really good. Uh, seek out Animal Farm as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, uh, hey, forgive one another. I'll just end with that. Do it. Do it. Because when you don't, it's like you're, you know, revenging them.
1: It's like you're a big, fat pig.
0: It's like you're a big, fat Stalin-like pig.
1: And you don't want to be that, do you? You sure don't. You'd rather heap burning coals on someone's head. Right,
0: right, exactly. Um, Now, if only someone had just said that to the pigs about Mr. Jones. I don't know if that's feasible. But anyway, (laughs) um, so, okay uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com. You can email Josh, Josh at more than one Uh, you can go to the aforementioned more than one and check out various articles and previous episodes and video and that kind of thing. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh long at the Josh long. We also have a Facebook group that you can uh, request to be a part of, and I will probably approve of you. Um, sorry, approve you. <laughs> and approve of you, but that's that's not a guarantee. That's a taller order. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to uh, to get involved. You can sign up for the newsletter, which uh, I send out once a month, uh, and just you know, kind of remind you of, of things you might have missed in the last month, and uh, maybe things that are coming up. Uh, another reminder: Hey, everybody, we do have a number of t-shirts that nobody would ever buy, and that makes sense to me. But you could buy them, indeed, and one of them features Josh's big smiling face with something that he said a few episodes ago. You can't wait. What was that? You can't wait to have this shirt. Yeah, what does it say? I don't remember. It says, sorry, Josh is clearly fading. He's getting very (laughs) sleepy. Uh, It says... It's fantasinating, which is something that Josh said by accident, and we decided to turn it into, sorry, I decided to turn it into a, uh, a delightful t-shirt.
1: A slogan, if you will. If I bought you that t-shirt for Christmas, would you wear it? Probably not. Although I feel, unco- I think it's because I feel uncomfortable about wearing a shirt that has my face on it. It's not immediately recognizable as your face. It's still my face. You have a
0: be- I'll I- recognize it. <laughs> that, fair enough. Um, you have a beard now in, the, in the photo. You're clean shaven and you're wearing sunglasses. It's not immediately recognizable as your yeah. face.
1: I mean, Megan made me a shirt that does have my face on it. That's even a very clever joke, but uh, what is it? It's uh well, it's from an inside joke, so it's hard to explain, oh, okay. but it's a space pilot on it.
0: Oh yes. I believe you've told me
1: that. Yeah. But I still, and I like it, and I wear it sometimes, but I feel a little strange wearing it out because it has my own face on it. And I feel like if someone recognizes that and is like, are you wearing a shirt with you on the shirt? Then I'd be like, yeah. I think that would be basically the best thing ever.
0: Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I have a hard time wearing, I mean, I've never purchased any shirts of Battleship Pretension with, like, the logo on it. Because I don't want to be walking around with a logo of my own podcast. Even though plenty of people do it, it's fine. But Barney's like, I'm already shameless enough in promoting this thing. But yes, so uh, I'm actually quite pleased with my with the design for the t-shirt, so check out the It's Fascinating" t-shirt and get a photo of Josh on your chest, <laughs> along with that ridiculous phrase. So, okay. Uh, all right, we've come in at uh, roughly around the time I expected, which is very exciting and very rare. Um So thank you, everybody, for listening. And Josh, as always, thank you for being here. Well, you're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.